Vox Quick Hits. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of the measures the U.S. took to respond to the pandemic were tough. We shut down businesses and closed schools. We spent months at home. And everywhere we went, we were asked to wear a mask. Now that things are finally getting back to normal for many people, it's tempting to want to move on and not look back. But it's important to try to decipher what worked and what didn't. After all, something like the COVID-19 outbreak could very well happen again. Dylan Scott recently did a deep dive to try to figure all of this out. He's a senior correspondent at Vox. Hey, Dylan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So, California mandated masks. Florida opened restaurants. Did any of this matter when it came to what happened with the COVID-19 outbreak? So, that is both the big question and a really hard question to answer. Like, if you look at the per capita deaths in Florida and California, which were often held up against each other as kind of polar opposites about how to address COVID, you know, California had been really aggressive about trying to restrict activity and putting mask mandates into place. And on the other side, you had Florida, which had been really aggressive about reopening last summer. And yet, like, you know, after 15 months or 18 months of a pandemic, it all seemed to have shaken out to about even. And it, and it wasn't immediately clear that one strategy had been superior to the other. And so that was our starting point. It just looked like a policy morass. Didn't necessarily look like anything had made a difference. But then, you know, I, I started asking people about this. And the, the response I got, you know, before you can even get to, like, which policies worked and which policies didn't, it's important to address the fact that, like, there's a lot that goes into a, how a country or a state, the experience that they had during the pandemic, that they had no control over whatsoever. So, like, New York couldn't help that that was kind of the place where the virus first landed. And, you know, it suddenly was spreading really rapidly before anybody had any sense of how serious the virus was or how big of an emergency this could explode into. You know, there's also just like these immutable characteristics of a given place that has an effect on the virus and how easily it can spread. So like I did a story last summer uh, looking at Florida specifically and asking the question of like, why hasn't the virus exploded there, even though people were freaking out about like pictures of people, you know, partying on a beach and stuff like that. And I think, you know, on the one hand, we've learned that doing stuff outdoors is maybe not as dangerous as we feared back then. But something else that I heard from public health experts was like, well, in New York, you have a lot of like multifamily households or like apartment buildings where people are just living in much closer proximity to each other. Whereas somewhere like Florida has a lot more single family homes. And if people just restrict their activity a bit, maybe they're not going to naturally come into as much contact with other people as they might in some place like New York. And that inevitably gives the virus fewer opportunities to spread. There were things that that affected how hard COVID hit these states that has nothing to do with their policy decisions. And it does seem like there are some things that work and some things 
that don't necessarily. And and it's more of a matter of degrees. Like we may never have a great idea of how much a difference a mask mandate made, but we do have an idea that that probably helped. And then other things like closing schools may not have made nearly as big of a difference as we thought they would. Got it. And I do want to dig into those a little bit, kind of bit by bit, if that works for you. Let's start with masks. What do we know about whether or not they worked? I talked to a guy named Amesh at Johns Hopkins University for this story. And he was definitely on the skeptical side that many of these interventions made a whole lot of difference, you know, closing restaurants, closing schools. You know, he he seemed to think that a lot of that was really lockdown theater and more, you know, something that gave us the impression that something was being done rather than actually having a real material effect on how much the virus was spreading. But the one thing he singled out that he thought there was good evidence for and that had proved its utility during the pandemic was indoor masking. So that was a kind of a signal to me that this guy who's skeptical about almost all the other things we did to try to contain COVID still thought that indoor masking was really important and therefore that mask mandates had a lot of value. There were some studies that were published early last year in the middle of the summer that were evaluating the first few months of the pandemic uh, that seemed to show that mask mandates had had a material impact on slowing down the spread of COVID-19. And then the CDC, much more recently, looking at like basically kind of a full year of data on mass mandates, also found that after those mandates were put into place, the rate of transmission and the rate of, you know, serious cases and deaths started to slow after mass mandates went into place. That is why we singled them out if, you know, as uncertain as everything else seems to be. The fact that we were requiring people or strongly urging people to wear masks when they were inside does seem to have actually uh, led to slower transmission, which is, you know, once we lost control of the virus, slowing it down is really all we could hope to do. And it it does seem like masks accomplish that. And what about lockdown measures? So the stay-at-home orders and closing down restaurants and bars, did locking down to the extent that certain areas did? Did it work? This is where things start to get a little bit muddier. There's definitely strong evidence that at first, those kinds of lockdown measures, especially stay-at-home orders and closing bars and restaurants, did have a meaningful effect on spread. You know, it's a little bit tricky to try to untangle the causation there. Like, did those measures go into place, you know, once the virus was already spreading really rapidly in a given area and people were already taking their own precautions and the the stay-at-home order or what have you just formalized it? That's one of those things that I think we'll never really know. But I think there is a good reason to believe that when the government says, like, you should shelter in place or we're going to close bars and restaurants, Uh, That not only literally prevents people from going to certain places where they'd have an opportunity to interact with others and potentially spread or contract the virus, but it just sends a signal to the general population that, like, this is serious and you need to take it seriously and you need to alter your behavior accordingly. We saw this kind of polarization where, like, there were some people who were behaving really rigidly according to the rules and not doing much, especially if the government said that they shouldn't. And then you had other people who started to drift back towards more, like, 
normal life. And you had places like Florida that pretty quickly relaxed things like closing restaurants and closing bars and never really put them back into place, even though they did experience surges of COVID later in the year. So it was maybe really effective at first to do those kinds of lockdown measures, both to literally restrict people's activity and, again, to send a signal about the seriousness of the situation. But over time, both because, you know, those policies were relaxed and then, you know, individual behaviors started to be more polarized over the course of the year, they probably weren't as effective, you know, by the summer or certainly the fall. Um, so it's a little bit of a mixed picture, I think, on lockdowns. And, and certainly one lesson is it's, it's really hard to sustain that lockdown mentality. Like governments are impatient about it, you know, because of the effects on business. People are impatient about it for all of the understandable reasons. Uh, so they're much more a, a kind of short-term hammer for, for the COVID nail, so to speak, rather than something that's really sustainable over the course of a year or 18 months like, like we've been living through. Right. And what about schools? Because that was super controversial, right? Do we yeah. know what happened with schools? Was it effective to shut them down? Was it not? So this is the one that's probably the most difficult to answer and, yeah, kind of the diciest to even try to answer um, because I think you had a lot of conflicting variables in play. You had the teachers' unions who wanted to protect the teachers. You had parents who were now working from home and facing the prospect of having their kids at home for a year. So, yeah, it kind of became a really charged debate really quickly. I will say... The people I've talked to and the research I've seen does not suggest that closing schools was really effective at containing COVID-19. That could be in part because these other measures were more effective. And so by the time you're closing schools, if people aren't going to restaurants and bars, you know, it, you're maybe not going to get that much more value out of closing schools too. We know that COVID is not as dangerous for children as it is for older adults, especially or the elderly. While everybody did worry about asymptomatic transmission, you know, a kid contracting the virus and then spreading it either to their teachers or bringing it back home and spreading it to older family members. I think it's still pretty unresolved how much that was really actually happening. So I think, yeah, the evidence is a lot more mixed and not particularly strong in favor of closing schools. And I imagine that going forward, policymakers are, are going to probably look at that question a little differently given the COVID experience. And so I think rightfully and understandably, we're going to spend a lot of time chewing over uh, whether school closers were really worth it and what we should do for the next outbreak that will inevitably come, which is part of the reason we wanted to do this piece, because nobody had really lived through a pandemic like this before, and now we have. So it seems like you know the opportunity to actually figure out what works and what doesn't. I mean, it certainly feels like we're in a moment of, A, we spent the past 18 months, at least from my perspective, really learning how science works and realizing <laughs> that it is an evolving process. But I guess the big question here then is, kind of what have we learned from any of this? I hope that this is the last pandemic in my lifetime. Um, <laughs> but why do we want to figure out this stuff going forward? Like, why not just kind of move on and say, you know, we have the vaccine, the end. 
There's a few reasons, I guess. And we wrote a whole series called The Pandemic Playbook that people should read um, about lessons that we've learned from the pandemic and and how they might be applicable in the future. You know, when I think about this question, I guess I think of South Korea, which is one of the stories we did for that series. You know, they had a, a really disastrous response to MERS like five years or six years ago in 2015. They had the worst outbreak of anywhere outside of the Middle East for a respiratory virus, not, you know, even deadlier, we think, than COVID-19. But pretty similar in a lot of ways. And so they took that crisis and they were like, all right, what went wrong? Where did we screw up? And they spent the time investing in building up their public health infrastructure and coming up with contingency plans. And you know, when they were doing all this in 2015, I don't think anybody could have imagined that just five years later, we'd have this world-altering pandemic that was worse than anything that anybody who wasn't alive during the Spanish flu has had to live through. And as a result of learning those lessons from MERS and trying to come up with better protocols for the next time an outbreak happened, they have enjoyed a much more normal life than we have in the United States over the last year. A lot fewer sick people, a lot fewer deaths. Like Although that investment and that effort to learn from the mistakes of the past has really paid off this year. And so now the U.S. has had that kind of stress test on all of its policies and systems and it just its ability to respond respond to an infectious disease. And so I have the fear that people are just going to want to move on and we're not going to really internalize any of the lessons from what's happened over the last year. And we might not be that much better prepared the next time an outbreak happens. And like, I think that is a very salient fear and like one that I've definitely heard when I've talked to public health experts. Like there's a, there's a kind of low simmering anxiety about like, why isn't anybody like kind of writing up a really big report about everything that went wrong and the things that went right and how we might do better the next time. But we do have like a year's worth of data. And I I do think, as we've been talking about, um, we can start to draw some conclusions about what's effective and, you know, why some policies faltered. Uh, But then the question kind of becomes, what do you do next? How do you either like get such good control of the virus as a place like South Korea did, that you can start to ease back towards normal life more quickly? Or, you know, what's sustainable and what's not? You know, maybe you can close bars and restaurants for a couple months and provide an economic relief package that makes that palatable for workers and business owners. Uh, But maybe closing schools for in-person instruction for an entire year doesn't make sense. Um, And so, like, these these are the kinds of things that I hope people are starting to chew over as we come out of the pandemic. And I do think, like, if we took a hard look at ourselves and we're honest about what's gone well over the last year and what hasn't, that we could certainly come up with a better playbook for how to handle the next outbreak than we had for COVID. So we don't lose another year and change of our lives. Nobody wants to lose another year. Exactly. You know, I think that's the kind of end goal that we could all agree on. And so now we got to figure out how we do it. Because, yeah, as other people have written plenty of times, like there are all the ingredients for another outbreak swirling around all the time. And it, it is just, it's inevitably going to happen one of these days. So this is our chance to be better prepared when it does. Well, thanks so much for being here, Dylan. Thanks for having me, Emily. And I'm sorry if that got a little <laughs> dark there at I the end. sad at that. <laughs> <laughs> Dylan Scott is a senior correspondent at Vox, and you can find him on Twitter at Dylan L. Scott. I'm Emily Stewart, and this is Tell Me More. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. You can find more stories from Vox in the Vox Quick Hits feed wherever you get your podcasts. 